0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, if you would, please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word we be looking at the first 21 verses here this evening, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, and the the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat uh, their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in the waters you may eat all that have fins and scales and whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat the Eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the Falcon and the kite after their kinds, every Raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull and the hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech, owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, The fish owl, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates that that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Well, Father, as we do come to these laws which you have given us in your word, which very often can be confusing to to Christians as as we read them so many years, uh, even so many years after they've been abrogated and we no longer even follow them, Help us, Lord, yet to understand their significance, to understand the reason why these laws were given to Israel, and even the way in which they point to your glory, and that we would even take the principles which were given to Israel and apply them to our own lives, even if the food laws themselves are no longer to be applied in the same way. Father, we do ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we certainly do come to a difficult set of laws in the old testament here i I imagine that there's probably not been too many sermons that have been preached on deuteronomy 14 or leviticus 11 which is the other place of course where uh, the food laws are set out uh, in the scriptures very often these are the kinds of laws that when people get to them in leviticus or deuteronomy they find them very difficult to read through they these are the kinds of things that christians tend to want to skip and the question is you know what in the world do these laws have to do with my life What did they mean in the time? They seem very enigmatic in a lot of ways. What do they have to do uh, with the gospel? These are questions that often Christians will ask. What are we to make of these kinds of laws, and how are we to read them uh, in a way that can be profitable to us? Now, if you've been with us, when I preached through the beginning of Matthew and also the beginning of Genesis, you'll remember that there were a few times where I actually preached sermons on genealogies. And there I made the point that each genealogy in the scriptures, they're, they're actually very often constructed differently. And the, the purpose of the genealogy is very often to make a theological point. So they'll be structured in a certain way to make a kind of point. And that is really the way, if you can figure out the, the theological point that's being made behind it, then you can understand the reason why uh, particular genealogies have been given. And then you can, you can understand then how they are to be useful. Well, the same thing is true with these kind of laws. It can be Difficult to understand all of the details, but if you can understand something of the reason why these laws were given, you can you can understand how to apply it to your lives and even how it can be helpful. It's and the reason is because the reason why the food laws were given is ultimately to make a theological point. There is a theological point that's being made with the food laws. And if you were to ask, well, what, what is that point? There's really two things that we can say about the food laws, and particularly the way that Moses structures the passage here. We can, we can see these two things are very clear. First, the food laws teach us that we are not to conform our lives to the world of death, but rather to the God of life. It's one thing that we see with the food laws. And the second one, and the second really purpose of the food laws is that it makes a distinction between those who are uh, given over to the world of death and those who belong to the God of life. So they, they point to this difference that we are not to be conformed to the world of death, but rather to the God of life. And and the purpose of the laws then are to point to that and then show that there is a distinction. There's a distinction between Israel and all the rest uh, of the nations. Those are the the two points. And so those can apply to us in various different ways. First, we still need to realize that we must not conform to the world of death. So all the things that the food laws were pointing to in that that sense, the the particular theological point that they're making still applies to us. We are not to be conformed to the world of death. We're rather to to belong to the God of life. And even if you say the other way is really the way Deuteronomy structures it since you belong to the God of life, you are not to conform to the world of death. Since you belong to God, the God of life, you are not to uh, conform yourself to the world of death. And if this is the case, then there needs to be some kind of distinction between the church and the world. Now that distinction is no, no longer the food laws. So in that sense, they've been done away with. However, these principles, as I said, do still apply. Now, Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 14, as we saw last week when we were doing Deuteronomy 13, he has begun to to expound the third commandment. We've looked at the first commandment, very long exposition going from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 11. Chapter 12 is Moses' explanation of the second commandment. Chapter 13 began the explanation of the third commandment, and this is really the conclusion. The idea here is that with the food laws, you are to act a certain way because God has put his name on you, and you are not to take his name in vain by being conformed to the nations that is a way in which you would then be taking the name of the lord in vain so just as as with deuteronomy 13 if you are not diligent to exercise church discipline you've taken the name of the lord in vain so here too if your life conforms to the world you have also taken the name of the lord in vain you must be separate from the world of death because you belong to the god of life. That's what it means to be holy and to have the name of God put on us. Now, uh, something really quickly about the structure of this passage. It's actually structured by a frame. There's a frame. Uh, there's a. There's the first two verses give something of an explanation of why the food laws are the way they are, and the theological point that's made. And then there's there's words at the end pr- uh, as well in verse 21 that also give us some information as to how we are to understand the food laws. And this frame, so to speak, the the words at the beginning in verses one and two, and the words in verse 21, provide for us a sort of a grid for understanding what the significance of these particular food laws are. And so we're going to look at this passage by looking at some things in the frame. We're actually going to spend quite a lot of time in the frame to understand uh, the beginning and the end of the passage, as again, they, they provide a lot of clues as to how we're supposed to interpret the food laws. And then we'll look at the, the food laws themselves. Uh, we're actually going to divide the passage into three parts, looking first at the way in which we belong to God. Mention mentioned that the, the whole point of the food laws is because you belong to God, you, b- you belong to the God of life, therefore you cannot be conformed to the world. So we're going to look at what it means to belong to God in the frame. Then we're going to look at, secondly, the difference between life and death. And we'll look at this from the frame and also from the, the food laws themselves. And then we'll look at, thirdly, the way in which the food laws make a separation and a distinction between the world and the church. So there is the sense in which we belong to God, and the way in which this means we have to cling to life. Secondly, we cling to life rather than death. And the way in which there is a visible distinction between those who belong to God in life and those who are given over uh, to death itself. Now, with that in mind, then let's look a little bit more closely at the frames. This would be, again, the first two verses and then also uh, verse 21. Not even all of verse 21, but some of verse, uh, verse 21. Now, the way that Moses is structuring this is there is a declaration of holiness because the people of God belong to God. And then there is in the frame as well, a description of some kind of pagan practice that is related to death. So the idea is you belong to God, you are holy, therefore this pagan practice that shows forth death, you are to move away from, you are, you are to uh, keep yourself uh, far from. That's the, the point of the frame. So verses one and two again and again, uh, verse 21, notice, Uh, the very first thing that's said, and this really is a sort of theme for the entire passage. It's sort of like the, the, you could almost call it the title of the entire passage. The very first part of verse one, you are the children of the Lord your God. So everything that follows is going to be implications on that one statement. You are children of the Lord your God. You belong to God. God is your father and you belong to him. Now this has already been said a number of times in the Pentateuch. Not often, you know, uh, people make the point that uh, in the New Testament, it's very often said that God is our Father. It's very rarely said in the Old Testament that God is our Father. And that's true. It's definitely a doctrine that's emphasized far more in the New Testament. However, very interestingly, it does come at some climactic points in the Old Testament, such that it is, in fact, still a very important thing. Um, So, for instance, when Moses comes in uh, and is speaking to Pharaoh, and there's this threat that if he does not let the people go, then, uh, then... You know god's going to unleash all these plagues on egypt and the threat is that that's made to pharaoh is you need to let my firstborn son go israel god says or else i will kill your firstborn son and that of course becomes then what ends up happening uh, many a few chapters later in the 10th plague we also have in deuteronomy chapter 1 and and, in chapter 8 as well we've seen a couple of times already in this series that God has described even in the wilderness years, he's led his people through the wilderness as a father leads uh, his own children. He has shown his fatherly care for the people of God in the wilderness. And the point is, is that all throughout the Pentateuch, then and all throughout the Bible, God is the loving God who takes care of his people, who protects his people as a father protects his children. And the food laws then are meant to show this distinct status from the nations all of the other nations are not the children of god israel is the children of god and the visible distinction that's made between them are these uh, particular laws notice then after moses speaks about uh the the pagan practice of cutting yourself and shaving your head for the dead he then says in verse 2, going on about the, the way in which the people of God belong to him, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are distinct from the nations. These laws show forth that distinction. This, this language of calling the people of God the treasured possession of God takes us all the way back to Exodus 19, where Uh, the people of God are standing before the mountain of God at Mount Sinai and God comes in uh, all of his fiery glory. And he says, you are a treasured possession. You are my possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. This is, this was the status that the people of God had because they had been redeemed by God himself. And as such, then as the text says, they are holy. They've been set apart for God. And we're told even further in verse two, that this is because of election. They have been chosen specifically by God apart from any of their works. God has set his affections on them, and even this, we know, has happened even from all eternity. All e- from all eternity, God has done this uh, for the people uh, of God. All of this is said in the frame passage, the, the, the frame, the, the, the beginning and the end, to teach us something about uh, how we are to understand these particular food laws. The idea is these laws are appropriate because you belong to me, and there needs to be some visible distinction between you and all of these other nations. Now, uh, and, and as I mentioned, this is even related then to the third commandment. If you have this special status as being the people of God because God has put his name on you, then if you were to then act just like the nations, you have taken the name of God in vain. There, it, It's God's name has been put on you for no purpose. It's it's uh, you are to reflect your father who is in heaven. If you do not reflect him, then it is really of no use that you have his name put upon you. And so the frame teaches us that th- that we are, that the people of God are the special treasured possession of God. And therefore, there are certain things that ought not to be done for Christians. Now, notice as well then, also in the frame, there are two things that are mentioned in terms of Things particularly that the nations were doing that Israel is not to do. Notice this this is uh, the second part of verse 1 and then the very end of verse 21. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. So this has been a a mourning ritual that had been done for the dead where people would cut themselves. And then secondly, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now we'll come back to to particularly what that means. Uh, But if we think about the first one, the idea of cutting yourself, or shaving your head for the dead. This would have been a, a, a pagan way to mourn for the loss of of a, a loved one or, s- or someone who's died. And it was uh, basically in, in a basically um, a quite inappropriate way uh, to mourn uh, the loss for someone because it's, it's related to death in a way that does not in any way show forth uh, the, the hope of the resurrection or anything related uh, to the scriptures themselves. You find something similar, for instance, that happens with uh, the prophets of Baal I- with Elijah in 1 Kings 18, where the prophets are cutting themselves in order to try to get some kind of response for from Baal. Uh, we see um, se- this happen in other places as well, where um, it this was just even a, a thing that happened in paganism, where there'd be a, a mutilation of the body in some way as a mourning rite on behalf of the dead. It's not in any way appropriate. It is, uh, has... Related to quite an undue fascination with uh, death itself and is a practice that shows forth death rather than life. Cutting yourself for the dead is in no way related to life. It is only something that shows that you are given over fully uh, to death itself. One of the things this this shows, and we're not going to go into this too much, but one of the things this does show is that it is important the way that you care for the dead. It's important the way you care for the dead and it's important the way that you mourn. There is a way to do this that's consistent with Christian principles, and there's a way to do it that's not consistent with Christian principles. So one of the things we can say is first with Paul in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, in particular, that we do not mourn like those who have no hope because we believe in the resurrection. Uh, This is also why it's it's generally been a Christian practice to bury our dead rather than to be cremated. The, uh, The idea of burial is you put the body in the ground because you know that it's going to rise again like planting a seed and then having a flower come up. The idea is that you put the body in the ground and it's actually going to produce a greater life in the future. So it's actually principles consistent with life, even as we mourn the loss uh, of a particular person. Cremation is related to the destruction of the body, the total annihilation of it because of the separation of the soul from the body. We don't, the the reason why that's not consistent with Christian principles is because we care for the body. And the final hope that a Christian has is not to be separate from the body, but to be in our bodies. And to show that hope, we bury the dead as a testimony to the world that we do believe that the body will, in fact, rise again. And so it is important that we we think about even the way in which we care for the dead is not to show forth an understanding of death where it is permanent or final. We are to show forth the reality of the resurrection with all that we do. Now, the second thing, as I mentioned, that's said, and this is at the end of the passage, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, why is this particular law given? It's, it's actually mentioned a few times in Scripture. It's mentioned also in Exodus chapter 23 and also in Exodus chapter 34. In both cases, besides this chapter in De- Deuteronomy 14, it's in the context of, of worship, of uh, worship practices. And the idea here is that this was actually a pagan practice that was done and it was an inappropriate crossing of life and death. So a mother's milk was meant to bring life to the young goat, and yet if you boil a young goat in its mother's milk, you are using the thing which was meant to give life for death. And so here again, just like with the the mourning rites where you're cutting yourself for the dead, there is an inappropriate blending of life and death such that really you are uh, giving yourself over to death. Uh, Life becomes death for you. And that's, the, that's what the, the pagan practices did. And what the, the point of this frame then is to say, you are the children of God. You don't belong to the God of death. You belong to the God of life. These things that the pagans do, where they do things like uh, take things that are meant to be used for life and they use them for death, when, when they do things like cut themselves as they mourn for the dead, showing no understanding of uh, the significance of the resurrection, these things undermine your testimony of faith in the Lord, in, in the Lord Himself, they undermine your status as the special possession and treasured possession of God Himself. You belong to the God of life. Do not conform to the pagan world of death. That's the idea. Now, this is something that we see even beyond just these two practices. These two, these two practices of cutting yourself for the dead or of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk are sort of. Um, they're they're sort of uh, just examples that, uh, you know, you could could have had a large pool of things that Moses could have said, because this is something that's characteristic of paganism in general. Paganism is always related to death. It's always related to death in every culture that it's found, in every time that it's found. So you can see even in the Old Testament the way this works with, for instance, the Egyptians, where they are the people who are, uh, as one author has put it, the experts in death. They make large pyramids. What are they for? They're for death. And they are uh, perfect. They, they do well at mummifying people. Uh, everything is related uh, to death itself. You think of even the witchcraft that is, that is prohibited in the Old Testament. The reason why it's prohibited, in part, is because of this relationship to death. So, you know, Saul goes to see the witch at Endor in 1 uh, Samuel 28 and she tries to bring up Samuel from the dead to talk to him, the idea of speaking to the dead. And this is is something that's always connected. Witchcraft and speaking to the dead are always connected. There is a fascination with death itself. So there is the religion of death, but you belonging to God are a part of the religion of life. You believe and belong to the God who is in fact the living God. And this idea of a culture being given over to death is not just something that's ancient. It is in fact going on now, and this is a, a very important point as to why and how these principles still relate to us today. You know many people will talk about the culture of death today, the culture of death. The reason why there is a culture of death that is growing is because there is a growing paganism in this world. There is a, once, once Christianity is undermined and people are, t- turn away, the pe- when people turn away from the God of life, they end up giving themselves over to the religion of death. And so, for instance, this can be seen with uh, things like uh, Wicca, w- the Wiccans. Uh, there's one scholar who said that they have a, uh, a, perhaps as he put it, surprising amount of attention to darkness and death. They are devoted to death. Uh, we see this with the kind of uh, dark kind of themes and culture that, that people can get into that are in some ways related to this sort of thing. Uh, and th- these would be things that are explicitly pagan, And they are explicitly pagan in part because they are related to death itself. They are committed to death. Now, you may say, well, that's clearly on the outskirts of society. It's not mainstream. However, there are a number of things that are, in fact, mainstream, that are related to this culture of death. uh, Typically, when people talk about the culture of death, they're not talking about fringe pagan practices. They're, in fact, talking about mainstream things. So things like abortion. Abortion is part of the culture of death where there are millions of of babies who are are killed. Euthanasia, where the elderly uh, are killed because they're seen to be a a burden on the state. Those who talk about population control, the thought that uh, the world will be better off if there are less people in the world. This is usually connected with the environmental movement, which is something that Wiccans uh, actually do support for this very reason. Uh, The idea of uh, the environmental movement is very connected to pantheistic uh, paganism, and that's the reason why the solutions that they propose have to do with having less people, uh, because the environment itself needs to not be polluted by uh, other people. So there is uh, death is the way that the earth can be saved. Homosexuality, where there is a union between two people that does not produce life. Feminism, where there's a confusion of gender roles, so as to undermine the role of a woman in her life-giving and life-bearing uh, capacity, which is, uh, you know, one of the the. the most glorious things about women themselves is that uh, they have been given bodies and roles in order to foster the continuation of life itself. Marxism, same thing. Revolutions, posit that there must be revolutions where millions will die in order to produce some kind of utopia. Evolution, same thing, where there is advancement through death, and it is only through the killing off of the weak that that, uh, there can be progress uh, in the genes of any given species. All of these things show that an over-enthusiasm an over, over for death and even, in, in many cases, a positing of things which will lead to death and, in some cases, even thinking that death is the solution that's needed in this world to bring it into balance, that death is actually the thing that is needed. And if you were to ask, you know, why is it that some of these things that I've mentioned have an almost religious uh, enthusiasm from those who adhere to them, you think about feminism, environmentalism, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, all these things, why are they, in some ways, people d- will defend them as if they're religious? And the reason is because very often it is. There is very often a pagan view of the world and a pagan kind of religion that's attached to death itself that is the foundation for all of these ideas. Where, where death is seen as the ultimate solution And here, what we see even from these food laws is you belong to the god of life therefore be separate from the world of death and this still applies to us today in in all these ways i've said all of these things we are to reject as christians because they do not foster life because they themselves are giving over to death itself and this then is why the food laws are given as they are uh, it's, it can be difficult in some ways to figure out the logic of the food laws, why there are certain clean f- foods and unclean foods. In general, though, commentators have pointed out that they in some ways are related broadly to the idea of life and death. Even as we've seen, the frame helps us to understand this. Um, you know, Both of the, the, the things that, that Moses is saying to stay away from have to do with death and life. And we see this as well. The animals in general that eat other animals or particularly feed on dead animals uh, are those that are unclean. Uh, and uh, we see as well that there are certain animals that were, d- w- that were used more regularly in pagan p- worship practices. Again, even by that, even just that association automatically makes it linked with death itself. And those are the kind of animals that would have been unclean. The idea is that you are to stay away from these animals that in some way are related to death. Now, I, I said that there are, are some difficulties in terms of identifying each and every one of these animals. For, uh, some of them, they're, they're highly uncertain in terms of what the particular Hebrew words mean. There's not a, a lot of, of Hebrew literature, particularly on um, describing different kinds of animals in, uh, in detailed ways, and so you know, not all of these animals we can know for certain exactly what they are. There's an, a number of them that we, that we can, and the general principles are clear. You must be separate from the world of death, and animals in Israel that were more related to death, you are to stay away from in order to show this distinction between, between you and the rest of the world. Now, think about think about the way this then works with the Lord Jesus Christ and how in light of this all these things how in light of all these things the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is so important the world is enthralled by death it is something that it cannot escape and it is even in some ways it doesn't escape it and then it embraces it and goes headlong into death itself But brothers and sisters, it is not so to be with you. We don't worship the God of death. We worship the God of life who raised his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead after he died on the third day. On the third day, he was raised from death so as never to die again, to defeat death in such a permanent way that now all of those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ will also live and even now do live. He is in a world of death, the one great counterexample. He is the living one in a world of death. You can look around you, and you can see nothing but death, but when you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see the end of death and life itself. And so even as we think about this, even as we relate it to the, to the food laws, think about how the New Testament describes the Lord Jesus Christ as true food, particularly in John chapter six, where he says, if you, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. So the idea is, the food laws put a distinction between death and life, The true life is found in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember, in in John chapter 6, what he says, if you were to say, what does it look like to eat the flesh of the Son of God or to to drink his blood, to have this true food which gives life? Everyone who looks to him, that is, everyone who looks to the Son will have life. That's what it says in John chapter 6, particularly in verse 40. Or whoever, in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. In John chapter 6, the idea of those who have the true food of Christ so as to be given everlasting life in a world of death are those who believe in him. There are those who believe in him. And this is even something that we see every week in the Lord's Supper as well. This is what, w- what we have, where there is a table put before you and you feast on Christ, the one who is the living one, whose body and blood was given to nourish you, to give you life in a world of death. And so brothers and sisters, in this world of death, do not be led astray. There is always, there's always pressure on the church that we must give in to this or that practice of the world. We, we must do this or that thing because it's apparently righteous. All of it, though, only leads to death. We are to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be led astray, but rather to cling to him as the one who is life itself. To go astray from Christ is to go to death itself. It's to go to death itself. All the practices of the world show this to be true. And the food laws are meant to make this distinction to keep this distinction in the minds of the israelites you look at those cultures they're different from you and these food laws show the way in which they're different where you have life and they are given over to death now as i as i mentioned then the purpose of the of the of the food laws then are they're in some ways related to this death and life dichotomy but another part of their purpose is just in general to make this distinction so as long as these food laws are in place, there is a, a distinction between a Jew and a Gentile. It's very, very strong. You see this all throughout the New Testament, for instance, as you know, there's a, d- all these debates about uh, you know, whether or not the Gentiles can be brought into the church. The reason that that was so difficult is because these laws put a great distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this was the purpose. This is the purpose of the food laws. And in this way, the food laws are very much like sacraments. This is one of the purpose of the sacraments that we even find in the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 27 uh, in paragraph 1 part of the purpose of the sacraments is to make a visible distinction between those who are in the church and those who are outside the church. Those who are baptized, you think of uh, even how we celebrated uh, a baptism this morning. That baptism makes a distinction between a covenant member and a non-covenant member. So that so that James Walters is now different. He's he's not the same as Someone who grows up in an unbelieving household, he's objectively different because he has a visible sign that's been put on him that shows that particular difference. There is a distinction between those who belong to God and those who do not. And just as our sacraments today make this distinction, so too the food laws in the Old Testament were were meant to make this distinction. We even see this distinction coming out particularly in verse 21. As there's kind of a summary statement with regard to the kinds of foods that can be eaten, it's not talking about uh, a particular kind of animal, but it says rather that those things that are already dead, the idea is even if it's a clean animal, if it's a clean animal and you find it dead, you can't eat it because it's related, again, to death. And so you're not to to eat those kind of animals. But a foreigner may eat of it. Why is it that a foreigner can eat of it and an Israelite can't? Because a foreigner does not have the distinction and the, the, the distinction that shows that he belongs to God like an Israelite does. And so he can eat the thing that's related to death because uh, there's, there's nothing that would sh- let you think that he is related to the God of life. It's, but Moses is saying it's not appropriate for you to do that because you do belong to the God of life. So you can let the foreigner who is among you eat it. You can sell it to him, but you cannot eat of it yourself. You, you, you cannot defile yourself with that dead thing. It is to make a distinction between you and the Gentile. Now, all of this then, all of this then is important as we think about this question. Why is it that the food laws have gone away in the New Testament? Why is it that we no longer have these kinds of distinctions between uh, the people of God and those who are outside the people of God? Now, I've already mentioned that there are some ways in which we still do have some kind of distinction. We have things like the sacraments. Why did the food laws go away? If you remember, if we think about even just, the f- just establishing the fact that they do go away, you remember in Mark chapter 7, where uh, Jesus is, is interacting with the Pharisees about clean, uh, he's, he's talking to them about uh, clean and unclean practices, he's talking to them about the, the tradition of washing hands, and there's a statement that Mark gives, and he actually makes it quite explicit, about um, clean or unclean foods. He says it doesn't, uh, Christ says, what comes into your mouth is not what defiles you, but rather what comes out of it. And Mark then says, In saying this Christ declared all foods clean so there is this distinction you have the same thing happening in Acts chapter 10 where um, there are where there is a the soon-to-be conversion of Cornelius the first Gentile and Peter is up on a roof he's very hungry and he sees this vision of animals coming down all of them are unclean and God says rise Peter kill and eat and it happens many times a few times three times and uh you know peter says a couple times he says you know i've never defiled myself i can't i can't do that and god says uh, rise peter kill and eat what do not call unclean what god has called clean so now there's this distinction now with the coming of the lord jesus christ the food laws are no longer in place what why is it that these food laws are no longer in place the reason is because with the coming of the lord jesus christ the, the distinction between jew and gentile is gone and what that's supposed to indicate what it does indicate is that now with the coming of the lord jesus christ all of the nations are going to be brought in to the church all of them are going to have the good news preached to them and all of them are going to come to christ with the coming of the lord jesus christ anything now in the old testament that was used to distinguish between the jews and the nations has to go away because now the church is going to be made up of those from every nation, tribe and tongue and this is why then this is why in acts chapter 10 when there peter has this vision it's in the context of him preaching to the first gentile convert the, the idea is when the, is that when when god says do not call unclean what god has called clean he's not ultimately talking about the food he is talking about the food the food laws are gone but the food laws point to something else do not call unclean those people which i have now called clean all of the nations have now been brought in. This is also the meaning of Ephesians chapter 2, when, and this is actually even one of the great themes of all of the book of Ephesians, but particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul speaks about those who are, who are far off, who have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and he says that Christ in his body has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It's a dividing wall of hostility between who? It's the, the Jews and the Gentiles. This dividing wall with its statutes and laws has been torn down by the, the blood of Christ. And so having torn that wall down, he is now the peace between the Jew and the Gentile. The Gentiles are now brought in because the dividing wall of separation is gone. This is one of the reasons why the ceremonial laws have to be gone. They have to be gone because there is an ingathering of all the nations. So even these food laws even tell us something about redemptive history. So long as they're in place, The special people of god are the jews they're they're the the israelites those who are physical descendants of abraham isaac and jacob but once the lord jesus christ comes in these laws which are only meant to make a distinction that's that's their purpose is to make a distinction when when those laws are gone because the, the lord jesus christ comes that is a sure signal that all the nations will now in fact be brought in it is a sign of the gathering of the nations now, it's important to note even here, though, even as the food laws are then gone away, and they even even their going away makes a glorious, uh, is a glorious theological point about the gathering of the nations. Even then, as I mentioned, the principles behind the food laws still do apply. They still do apply. We are not to be conformed to the world of death. And just as the food laws were meant to show this forth in some way to the Israelites for a given time, so too it's still to be true of our own lives in uh, particularly appropriate ways. And so this is why, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, when we have the the Jerusalem Council, which was called really in some ways to answer this very question, should we make the Gentiles conform to these Jewish practices that appear to have been done away with in Christ? That was the question that was was being brought before the council in the Jerusalem Council. And if you remember what they said, they said, we are not going to lay any more burden on you, any greater burden on you than, than this, that you abstain from some things, None of it's related to the food laws. However, they did say you are to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, a pagan practice. You are to restrain from eating. You, you are to be. You are to, to Be restrained from eating blood, and sexual immorality. The things that were particularly pagan in their actual actions, not just you know the, the, the particular animal being unclean as a as a, a signal for, for some other reality, but. The actual practices which were related to death and were done in pagan worship you are still not to do those things that's why acts 15 says that you can't eat whatever you want you don't have to be circumcised you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols or anything else that is specifically pagan and that's because the principles behind the food laws still apply we are not to be conformed to this world of death we're not to be conformed to this world of death we're to rejoice as the food laws have gone that it means the ingathering of the nations, and we're to remember that the purpose of those laws are to show that we are to be separate. And this, brothers and sisters, is because, as I mentioned in the beginning, is because we belong to the God of life. This is the importance of what it means to, to bear the name of God. Remember, even with the baptism, what it does is it puts the name of God on a person. You baptize someone into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so even as these laws are not enforced in the same way as they were then, you, brothers and sisters, still bear the name of God. You bear the name of God. And it's still incumbent upon you to refrain from any practice that is given over to the world of death. And make no mistake, the world outside of Christ is nothing but a world of death. It's nothing but a world of death and may it be, may it be even as we think about the darkness of this world and the, the spiritual darkness that is all around us in this particular city, this state, this country, and even in the entire world, may it be that even as we remember that the food laws have gone away, that this would even spur us on to pray all the more that the nations will be brought in, that the gospel would be preached to the ends of the world and that even as God promised, that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that all nations would in fact be given to him and that he would call a people out of this world of death to belong to him the God of life let's pray oh father how we do thank you for your son the lord jesus christ who is life itself for all of those who are in him lord even as the apostle paul says in adam all die but in christ all are made alive lord how we do thank you that you rescued us from this world of death this world that is so engrossed by it and yet cannot escape it and yet lord you sent your son to even defeat death by death itself and then three days later raised him from the dead help us lord even as we think about these parts of the old testament that are difficult Help us to remember these great principles and even to be in awe that even things like food laws point to your great glory and even the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to cling to him and even, Lord, do open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word from all parts of it, that we would understand truly what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that all parts do in fact teach him. We do ask all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.